trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I can only assume that by listening to this program, you are probably truth curious. I don't know. Maybe you're, you're a genuine, you know, bona fide truth seeker and you're proud. You're out about it. I don't know that uh, we don't we don't have a flag for for the truth seekers at this point. But <laughs> if we did, chances are pretty good. It would be proudly flying, you know, from from our front doorsteps. Anyhow, I'm glad you joined me today. There's a lot to cover. I've got a great guest joining me in the second half of the show. We'll be talking with my friend, Dr. John C. Pulver, who, uh, he well, he's a multifaceted guy, but he's got a lot of really interesting things going on. Before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about communication. This is a subject that's near and dear to me, probably because, well, I've, I've kind of built my life and, and career on communication. And... I'm just going to dive into this article from Jordan Alexander. This is from intellectualtakeout.org because I I happen to see the interview that he's he's referring to. And if you want to see how far our communication skills, and I'm talking, you know, artful, clear, articulate communication, how far those skills have fallen, yeah, all you have to do is uh, is watch, uh, watch a clip from the Whatever podcast. I've seen this on Twitter, and this was just a clip I saw the other day but it's been making the rounds on the internet. And this podcast has gotten a lot of attention for its discussion of the modern dating world. One clip in particular caught the public eye solely because of what the young woman in it was saying. Not so much what she was saying, I guess it's how she was saying it. The clip begins, I think like the biggest thing that like annoys me and like the whole dating world is like, you get the picture? And Jordan Alexander, the author of this piece says, unfortunately, This particular verbal filler is commonly used by the younger generations, millennials and younger. Although Jordan says, I'm certainly guilty of employing the like crutch, though not to the degree in the clip. And it's it's really egregious in the clip. Like, anyway, you get the picture. (laughs) So Jordan says this verbal tick is just part of the broader fact that the younger generations don't eloquently or properly communicate. Now, it's easy to mock this sad state of communication, regardless of whether we ourselves are the best orators or not, and perhaps some humor is necessary as a pressure release. But he says if we want to fix this situation, it's worth seriously examining how we got here. So let's talk about the lost art of communication, which begins with the acknowledgement that none of us were born knowing how to speak. Babies and young children have an aptitude for acquiring a language, but they aren't born knowing a language. As a result, kids are dependent on their parents and those around them for how they should speak. So when children are put into the public school system, their language skills will likely only develop to the level they're taught in school unless their parents supplement this education. And with falling literacy rates and claims of grammar as being racist, it's clear we can't depend on public schools or even many universities to teach people how to communicate. Which brings up the matter of peer influence. Jordan Alexander says, besides the lost art of communication, young people are constantly surrounded by slang and verbal fillers. 
Just like someone may speak differently after moving to a new region, for instance, a southerner moving to Boston may adopt a, adopt New England figures of speech. We often change how we speak to mirror those around us. Even for those young people who speak more eloquently, not adopting these ways of speaking will be an uphill battle to avoid arriving at the lowest common denominator. It's similar to how good people around, the, around bad influences often succumb to temptation. And it can only be a matter of time before everyone in the group is saying, like every other word. Now, our communications mediums today also encourage quick, sloppy communication. So rather than laboring over a letter, we send a quick text or an email. It obviously doesn't make sense to overthink every text we send. The techniques we employ for communicating via text and email are very useful, but they become a problem when we let utility replace artfulness. Now, I just have to say this as an aside. I love great communicators. I strive to be an above average communicator, but I really appreciate it. When I find people who know how to turn a phrase or know how to express themselves or otherwise know how to make their point of view known, I am impressed. That's just, you know, wordsmithing is is one of those things that fascinates me. And if there's a way of saying something clearly, I'm going to dig it. So here's the solution that Jordan Alexander offers. He says, though both of these pro- through both of these problems, rather, runs a common thread. There's no longer an expectation of proper communication because there are no longer many opportunities to practice writing or formal speaking. For the younger generations, neither their schools nor their peers expect artful sentences. Now, for those of us in, in these generations, he says, when was the last time we got a handwritten letter in the mail that was more than a few sentences? When was the last time we wrote something with attention to art and form? When was the last time we had to practice our oration abilities? He says these experiences are critical to teaching us how to speak or write. Many years ago, Jordan says, I was a serial sayer of the dreaded, um, yeah, for a speech class, I had to learn how to break this habit. So he says, when I practiced my speeches, the test audience would drop a coin into a bowl each time I said, um. The noise was so jarring and distracting that the bad habit was quickly fixed. But without being in the situation where I had to give speeches, he says my speaking skills would likely never have improved. I'm thinking back to to my days in St. George, Utah, where uh, the Toastmasters Club was very, very active. So active, I think they actually had at least two different chapters. And I remember one of my friends uh, talking about the thrill of not only speaking, but also being the one to hold the horn. So when, when someone was speaking and they said, um, honk, you know, there was the horn honking to, to let them know that they had used that particular verbal crutch. It sounds mean, but when you consider, look, the job here is we're trying to help each other become more polished, better, more effective communicators. Well, it, it makes sense. And it was done with love and, and, of course, good humor. So back to Jordan Alexander's article. He says, for anyone in a position to encourage these sorts of opportunities of developing speaking skills, whether it's writing to a younger friend or relative or creating a speech team for a local school or homeschool group, you can give someone in your life the gift of a lifetime. Now, for parents, he says this is just one more reason to take charge of your kid's education. For instance, reading to your children, even if they don't understand what you're saying, will teach them foundational literacy and communication skills. 
Jordan Alexander says, for anyone like me who's in these younger generations, we can seek out these opportunities to learn and practice communication, joining a Toastmasters group, reading, great writing, or listening to great speakers. Those are simple ways to start. And by doing these things, we set an example for those around us. We slowly erode the sloppy speaking and writing we're surrounded with and make a small example of articulate, artful communication. I like how that sounds. Articulate, artful communication. Look, I'm not saying that everybody needs to get out there and become, you know, the equivalent of one of the great Greek or Roman orators, you know, with your toga and gesticulating to the sky as you speak. No, it's, it's just a matter of learning how to frame your thoughts and deliver them in a concise manner, manner rather. And, and for writing, this was one of the hard ones for me. It's, it's, you know, pick up a copy of something that Hemingway wrote and notice how short and concise his sentences are. That was always a tough one for me because uh, as a writer, I, I love words. And I have a tendency sometimes when I get on a roll to just kind of go with it. Well, you know, I'm just going to fall in love with myself and write a 40-word sentence here. That's not a good thing. The more we can express in fewer words, the more clearly those ideas come through. I'm also a big fan of something that is known as a Hoover paper. And the, as I remember, this goes back to Herbert Hoover, once president of the United States, who uh, I, I believe he, he insisted on this in terms of if somebody had, to, had an idea to present. Basically, here's how you presented it. You have one sheet of paper, two columns. You know, it's single-spaced, so you can get some information in there. But uh, you have that one sheet to write out your idea and, and explain it. And you bold. The, the, in two places, you, you pick a sentence to bold as these are the most important aspects of what that paper is communicating. In other words, it's kind of like an elevator speech in written form. To read a Hoover paper takes just a couple of minutes. But with those little bolded ideas that stand out at you, you know, it can take a lot less time because a person can look at it and just say, okay, I see what the gist is of what you're saying. Now, this is not me giving you a homework assignment, but I am going to say, if, uh, if you ever get the chance to put this to a test, you will find that it really forces you to distill an idea down to the essence of, okay, what's really important? You cut out all the extraneous stuff, you make it fit into that Hoover paper, and you have a pretty good chance of getting your message across in a timely fashion. All right, I've been going on for a bit, so we'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Just want to give a quick shout out here to my sponsors, which include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. Now, of course, I've provided thoughtful links to take you directly to each one of those sponsors should you choose to give them your business. And I would appreciate it if you, you know, let them know, hey, I heard Brian talking about you, or he he pointed me in the right direction, and just let them know that their message is reaching your ears. So I've, I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks, mainly because I've had a loved one who's been in and out of the hospital and, and really dealing with some horrific 
back pain. And and this, I don't mean to be a downer when I point this out, but you know the, the truth of the matter is at some point, every one of us will be acquainted with what it means to suffer. And, and when it comes to suffering, you know, I, I want to believe that I have the quiet dignity and firm upper lip, you know, to, to carry on as my British forebears did. But it's not that easy when you're the one who's suffering. And so I, I found this wonderful article from C.G. Jones on how to navigate suffering with wisdom. Yeah, who knew there was such a thing? C.G. Jones says, I've always been enamored by the book of Ecclesiastes. It's difficult to pin down precisely why this is so. But it has something to do with how seemingly averse it is to the contemporary thesis that happiness is, or ought to be, the highest aspiration of the human experience. Now, C.G. Jones says, look, I don't subscribe to the idea that life is about attaining happiness. And I don't believe the Bible supports this aim either. In fact, Ecclesiastes treads much closer to the sentiment held by philosophical pessimists and absurdists like Albert Camus, Peter Zapf, and Arthur Schopenhauer. He says, throughout my early and mid-twenties, I cut my teeth on the philosophical pessimists' work, believing, like them, that the world had simply found itself in a maelstrom of chaos, absurdity, and meaninglessness. However, the book of Ecclesiastes suggests something much different. The world did not accidentally find itself in a whirlwind of disaster, and it didn't somehow, by statistical fluke, begin existing. Rather, it was intentionally and specifically created. Now, there is substantial consolation in the realization of this fact. In fact, he says it reminds us that the world is not spinning out of control beyond the limits of any entity that could reel it back in, and that life's trials are not merely meaningless suffering. Ooh, did you catch that last part? There's meaning to suffering? C.G. Jones says the linchpin of the teaching in Ecclesiastes is that in much wisdom is much vexation and that the individual who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. There's a steep toll that is to be paid if one is to set out in search of wisdom and knowledge. It's not free. Beautifully said. He says, Virtually everyone has heard the flourish that for every answer we attain, there are more questions, there are more questions rather that follow. Is this by accident? Because it doesn't seem that way. It seems that our capacity for pain only expands as we arrive about at, at more answers rather about the world that we live in. In other words, knowledge and wisdom come with a healthy dose of suffering and agony. Perhaps this is why the second noble truth in Buddhism concerns itself with the cause of suffering, saying that suffering naturally follows from desire. However, Ecclesiastes does not suggest backing away from the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, as Buddhism seems to suggest. King Solomon, widely accepted as the subject of Ecclesiastes, openly accepted the contract of pain and suffering in pursuit of knowledge, saying, I applied my heart to know wisdom. Now, Solomon's life is a testament to the idea that pain and suffering should not dissuade us from pursuing knowledge and wisdom. For the Buddhist, much of life is spent attempting to evade the very substance of what it is to be alive, namely pain, suffering, and therefore the accumulation of knowledge and wisdom. Additionally, Solomon's perspective pushes back against two ancient strands of philosophy that are still widely discussed today. That would be Epicureanism and Stoicism. Epicureanism saying that happiness is the highest good 
easily degenerates into pure hedonism, putting pleasure at the forefront of all human behavior. Stoicism, on the other hand, approaches the world in a more clinical way, suggesting, like Buddhism, that desire inevitably leads to, to disappointment and suffering. Though these various philosophies are perhaps noble in certain ways, he says the book of Ecclesiastes stands apart. It doesn't teach us to run away from hardship or suffering. It doesn't support the thesis that happiness can realistically be attained in this lifetime. The words of Solomon do not intend to sugarcoat the nature of reality. Rather, they encourage us to face our trials head on. And Ecclesiastes seems to suggest that the pinnacle of human feeling ought to be contentment. In realizing the absurdity of the universe, we can proceed with greater awareness that while wisdom and knowledge are wonderful things, there is laced within them pain and suffering. Nevertheless, we shall push forward like Solomon, despite and in spite of the vanity of vanities. Kind of an interesting piece. And if you haven't delved into Ecclesiastes or the Old Testament for a while, it, it could spark your interest there as well. But I really resonate with this advice that C.G. Jones offers saying that the the words of Solomon don't try to sugarcoat the nature of reality, but they encourage us to face our trials head on. I don't count myself as a stoic. I try to be more stoic in my approach to life, but the fact of the matter is when bad things happen, I do what a lot of people would do, and I complain loudly and continually to, you know, whoever happens to be in earshot. Sorry if that's you right now at the moment. But it took me a while to figure out that uh, the the pain, the suffering, the trials, the things that really are not fun parts of life, you do yourself a terrible disservice if you try to avoid them. What do I mean by that? Okay, I, what I mean is there is such a thing as legitimate pain. And legitimate pain is is not something that we should avoid. I think one of the best examples I can think of of legitimate pain is exercise. Okay, anyone who jumps on the treadmill or who goes out for a walk or starts to lift weights or, you know, just jump straight to CrossFit for that matter. Those burning lungs, those aching muscles, the fatigue, the, the mental strain of can I do this? Can I, can I get to the end of this run? That's all difficult. But a person who is willing to suffer that pain is better for having done so. Every time they do it, their endurance grows. I still remember this, this transformation that I went through, oh, some 20-some years ago in, in St. George with a personal trainer, Patty Goey, who she really, she worked me hard and took about 45 pounds off me over the course of a year, maybe year and a half. And I was, you know, I was comfortable. I won't say I was completely out of shape and morbidly obese. I wasn't quite there, but I was very sedentary and comfortable and really didn't see a whole lot of reason to change that. To run was absolutely unthinkable. And as I started working with Patty, I would gauge my, uh, I, I would gauge my progress by there was a hill between my home and work. I could walk to work most days. And there was a nice steep hill, the Black Ridge, that I would climb over. And I started paying attention to, okay, at what point as I start up this hill, do I start to hear my pulse in my ears? Okay, usually within the first couple of houses, I could, you know, I could start to hear thump, 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 you know, my, my heart starting to race to keep up with the increased effort. 
And then I don't remember exactly how it happened, but as I stuck with and worked through and just went head on through the discomfort, there came a day where I realized I'm standing at the bottom of the hill and I start walking and suddenly I'm at the top of the hill. And yes, I'm breathing a little bit hard, but the crazy part was how quickly I could recover. That's when I knew that I was starting to, to get into shape. And it wasn't just, you know, a matter of, yes, I was going to become so buff that everybody in the room would ask me to leave. It was more a matter of I just wanted to have that freedom of movement and that ability to, you know, when I saw a flight of stairs in front of me, not go, oh, boy, I got to climb the stairs. But instead, just, oh, stairs and sprint to the top of the stairs. By the way, I don't do that right now. Life has become a little more comfortable in, in the past few years. But the point is simple. Face the suffering, learn from it, and find contentment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Very happy to welcome a special guest. I've known this guy for a long time, but when I say I've known this guy for a long time, I didn't really know him at all. I thought I knew who Dr. John C. Pulver is, but uh, John, I'm glad to have you on the show, and and for those who are meeting you for the first time, I'm just going to start by pointing out you and I were attending a little liberal arts college some years ago, and, uh, and I knew you were a great guy. I could just tell by your character you're a great guy, but I had no idea the background that you have as an emeritus professor of sociology at the College of Southern Nevada, teaching sociology and psychology. You're also a licensed marriage and family counselor. And I didn't realize this. You're, you're an accomplished musician and composer. What, what else have I missed here? I mean, that's, you wear a lot of hats, but uh, that's very impressive, John. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's it's been a really long journey, and uh, I'm a lot older than you are, so it kind of helps me to be able to accumulate a few things in my life. Uh, yes, there's no question that uh, I am currently very involved in in looking at the early experiences of individuals in their families, particularly, and also trying to help individuals to grow in a way that doesn't give them any kind of limitations in their life, regardless of that thing which they may have experienced or not experienced when they were growing up. I am currently the director of ClimbingUpward.com Associates, which is uh, uh, two different websites, the first being ClimbingUpward.com, which is dedicated to helping us to elevate ourselves and to climb to the heights of our total potential without anything stopping or damning us. In addition, that sister site of climbingupwardmusic.com is meant to be uh, an ancillary site that, that supports our need to be inspired and to be uplifted by music in this process. And so I have also had the experience of living in every kind of family structure in my life uh, experiencing these structures. The only one I have not experienced is I have not adopted a child, but every other experience uh, in family structures, I've had that uh, learning experience, which kind of informs some of my opinions and some of the things that I write. And, and to, to this end, you have a book titled Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience. 
And that's that's one of the reasons I have you on the show today, John. Uh, as I look around, I don't know how widespread this is, but there was a definite current of um, victimhood as as almost something to aspire to. If I'm a victim, I have uh, you know I have preferential status in society. I can tell you what to do because you should feel bad for me because I'm a victim. But most importantly. I have no responsibility because victims are never responsible for their circumstances. And and it sounds like you are offering people a different path that doesn't involve taking that mantle of victim and running with it, but uh, no matter what their situation, starting from where they are and and moving, or I should say climbing upward uh, through their own choosing. Talk to me a little bit about the book. What was it that prompted you to, to sit down and write this? Well, it was, it was a doctoral dissertation to begin with, and it took me two years, and it was literally uh, uh, two years of hell writing. Perhaps I don't have quite the writing capacity that Brian had has, but we'll <laughs> see. The, the thing that was interesting to me was uh, when I was teaching marriage and the family at the college, sometimes my students would ask me, well, what do you think is the most important preparation for being in a good marriage? And I thought... I thought about the title of a book, which I had read in my undergraduate years. The name of the book was called What You Bring to Marriage. It was by Dr. Kenneth Cannon. And I thought it was fascinating to think about what we bring to that marriage process. And then I started saying to my students, I think that you need to understand what family you came from and what you're bringing into that marriage if you are going to be able to understand the skills the deficiencies, and frankly, the cluelessness that you might have about making that marriage work. And so basically at that point, uh, I decided to write the book. And even though the doctorate was not in directly family studies, it was in something to do more with freedom on a large macro scale and studying constitutions and how they worked and freedom systems throughout history. I found that the uh, f- the freedom to act begins in a healthy family, and we have to figure out how we can do that. So the book itself asks you the questions, have you ever considered just what you were handed from your family? What advantages, disadvantages, skills, or experiences did your family give you, which you now use to build your current and future life with? If you have ever wondered what is behind how you think, feel, and act, Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience book will help you unravel an understanding of how your family experience fed into creating the person you now look at in the mirror. If you have ever felt stuck or gummed up in achieving what you want in your relationships with others and family, or have wondered just how the positive things that you were handed to you now work to enrich your life, in specific areas, then reading this book can set you on a path of understanding, growth, and satisfaction that will be rewarding and hopeful. Within the book, you will find a comprehensive family awareness questionnaire, or FAQ for short, which contains 118 questions which are designed to illuminate a full range of your family experiences growing up. These questions are followed each by feedback on the likely emotions, mental conclusions about life and possible behaviors which you might find yourself exhibiting right now as a result of your experiences. 
Then you also find chapters on key decision points in building family success and so on. There's extensive appendixes and so on in the course. Then to not go on and take too much time, the question might be what emotions are part of your life experiences now? How can you understand these to enrich your life? What mental conclusions about life, people, and relationships float around from time to time in your head? What has created these? And so this is the journey that you are working on to try to empower yourself. And this, this is the thing that the book tries to work on. You've been handed a torch. It could have had disadvantages. You could have felt like a victim. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to empower yourself to grow beyond those experiences that you may have had? In teaching sociology, there's no question in my mind that some people have been given a bad rap. They've been given a situation that really makes them struggle to get out of it. But that doesn't give them an excuse to say that they're limited when they have the power to change themselves if they will face it head on. And so most of my work and research and, and interest falls in that business of lifting people upward. And that's why we've done climbing upward. Notice that the word climb implies effort. Absolutely. And upward implies a particular direction. And so it's like nobody wants to, nobody wants to go downward and nobody wants to say, stay sideways. They want to go up. So you know, that's what this is all about, empowering them. As, as I've watched my own kids grow, I, I've realized that, you know, some of the things that I may have been a little harsh in judging my parents for, I'm likely to be judged for by my kids simply because in spite of my good intentions, I still made a ton of mistakes. And I, I know that in, in some cultures, you know, in, 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 certain, uh, in certain cultures, you know, people don't want to let on that uh, they've made mistakes. That, that, would, that would be tantamount to admitting failure. But, uh, John, the truth of the matter is everybody is kind of figuring it out as they go as parents. And so mistakes are to be expected, not excused, but at least to be expected. Um, what are, we, we've got about a minute here or so before we have to break, but what are some of the most common um, disadvantages that people feel they've been handed by their family of origin? And then we'll contrast that with advantages in the next segment. Okay. So the disadvantages, you know, it's, this one might take me a little bit of time to think, and you might have to cut off my, my thinking process when you get ready to put this in. I think the, the most important thing that happens for a child is what we call in sociology socialization. Some people might think it's training. In the Old Testament, it says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And then when he is old, he'll not depart with from it. So the biggest thing is, is are you going to be giving them some experiences that they then can use to find out who they are, what their capacities are, what their skills are, what they're able to do and who they can uh, present to the world once they emancipate themselves out of the house. So one of the big problems that we have is that in, in life, spite of the fact that we as parents are doing the best we can, uh, we can be the greatest examples in the world. But if we do not allow our children to have experiences that build them as individuals, then they get to be 18 and they don't know who they are or where they're going. So they need that experience. They oh. need 
specific things. Okay, we're going to pick this up on the other side of our break. I'm, I'm anxious to hear about the advantages too, because I, I really want to be a glass half full kind of guy when it comes to this. Again, we're talking with John C. Pulver, Dr. John C. Pulver. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We are talking with Dr. John C. Pulver. He is an emeritus professor of sociology at College of Southern Nevada, as well as a lot of other things. In fact, I've got a link. John, I'm going to include a link to your climbingupward.com website, as well as your climbingupwardmusic.com website, just so people can get a chance to kind of check this out for themselves. But we're talking about family of origin. And, and one of the reasons that I really wanted to have this conversation with you is because it wasn't so long ago I was introduced to the idea that that uh, no matter what traumas, you know, we may have had as we were growing up and, and things we had to deal with, you know, either mistakes our parents made or just things that, that happened to us as we grew up, I never really stopped to think about how my parents undoubtedly had trauma of their own that they were trying to reconcile and deal with and, and, and they were trying to do their best, you know, to, to figure out this whole parenting thing. And so it, it's, it's fascinating when I see people who, who take a very negative approach. Well, my, my parents, you know, dressed me funny and they made me go to church and they, you know, they didn't love me enough or, or whatever the case may be. And, and I agree, they didn't make enough money. You know, whatever disadvantages people see, sometimes people tend to get stuck on that. Talk to me about the advantages that people might notice if they were just to take a look and, and see what they were furnished with you know, in their family of origin? What, what do you consider some of the, the, the more notable advantages? Well, from a, from a financial standpoint, as I talk to my students, uh, it's really nice when, you, when a parent is stable enough financially that you can give experiences of exploration for your children. You can, you can have them involved in lessons. You can have them involved with developing their talents and, and, and so on get them involved in programs that help introduce who they are to themselves. And so families that have a little bit more money can kind of do this. Fortunately, that's not the only way that you can do it, but giving them experiences once again, and that's one of the ways that we hit the advantages. Uh, that the other thing that is important really is the communication style that you present to the uh, to the children that you're raising, are you are you able to allow them to communicate and discover their own feelings and their own thoughts? Do you have an atmosphere that encourages communication and working through conflict? And these are some really nice advantages that you can give to them. The, I've I've heard some people say on the area of spirituality that I don't want to. Uh, I want my child to be able to choose whether he worships or she worships God in a certain way. It's important, though, that they have enough experience when you're dealing with a choice. They must be able to explore it. They can't just have it taken away from them, and then you can expect that they're going to somehow be interested in something that they're not presented when they're growing up. So you can have spiritual spiritual gifts that you give them. You can have communication gifts that you give to them. And I, I think the, the important thing is that the love that you give to them does 
give them a foundation for their own value. And this is what I find fascinating uh, when I've talked to people who have been adopted because I've found that in many cases they have received a great gift of love and warmth and security and interest and and uh, building experiences from those parents who raised them. I'm fascinated with that because I think that makes a real difference. So when when you were dealing with people in, in your uh, licensed marriage and family counseling, um, did you often hear from, from people who uh, were, were trying to work through various challenges? Did, did they often turn back to their family of origin and say, you know, this is the root of my problems? Or um, did they even know to, to look at their family of origin and see if that was, was the source of some of their difficulty? Well, one of the things that I often did was uh, when I would do an assessment is they would talk about experiences that uh, they were having, feelings they were having, um, difficulties they were having. And I would say, when did this start? And often we were talking to a couple or maybe an individual who's having an addiction problem or something. And we would find out that the feelings that they're dealing with started back in a, in a home situation. They either felt that they were ignored or they didn't, or they felt rejected or they felt like they didn't have, uh, or they were hurt by something that happened or whatever. So this is kind of emphasizing the negative on the, on this little point right here. But the important thing is uh, they did start to realize that the way in which they saw life and the emotions that they were carrying, they've been carrying for a long time as a result of the kinds of experiences. And in many cases, the lack of good experiences that they had, you know, in their homes. And I call in my book, I call it cluelessness. When, when you just simply do not have a clue how to operate because you just haven't been in that field of action in your family before. And so you go on. I, I cover this very extensively in a number of chapters in the book. I want to see and, if I can draw a little bit of a parallel as, as I'm hearing you describe that I'm flashing back to, to the first time that I had an honest to goodness, Swedish massage. I'd never had one before and, uh, you know, didn't really know what to expect. But after I got thoroughly worked over for the better part of an hour, I was shocked as I was walking back to my car and I, I was, I was amazed at how little tension I had in, in my neck, my shoulders, my back stuff mm-hmm. that had become normal. I, it was so normal. I never even thought about it until it was gone. And, and as I'm hearing you describe some of the things that people carry with them, they're clueless, you know, about, I, I wonder if it's the same kind of thing. Do we just get used to it and, and accustomed to, to the weight of whatever that burden is that uh, we don't even think to question whether it should be there in the first place? I really like that because one thing we do know is that our family experience is, is our normal. We have no other normal. Uh, I like to give to my students a really radical example when I said, uh, you know, you have a, a, a young uh, young girl growing up who is in middle school, and she starts forming some some friendships, and she has friendship with the girl down the street, and she goes to visit them, and in their conversation, she says, you mean your dad doesn't sleep with you? You know, and so her normal was she was being, you know, sexually abused or sexually aroused by her father, and she had no way of knowing that that wasn't right. Now that's an extreme example, of course, but, but, but this is, we, we all think, and this is what happens sometimes when we get into a relationship as an adult or get married to somebody, we see another family of origin and we say, 
whoa, wait a minute. Well, that's different than mine. Wait a minute. I'm not sure I liked what I had there in, in the beginning. So the, um, it, it's the, it's the idea that you, you carry, you, you just carry with these, with you, these experiences and, and when the new experiences come, they bring you back to either those experiences or they bring you back to your insufficient preparation for that experience or your cluelessness. And you keep running into those things as you get older. I can, I can see right now you and I are going to have to have some follow-up conversations here because this, we're, we're touching on a subject that I think has way more relevance in our world than, than even I was, was, was thinking. I was thinking it's pretty relevant, but I, I think this is something that, that, that could really benefit people. In the, in the couple of moments that we have left here, John, talk to me a little bit about your music. And uh, I, again, I knew you were a great guy. I did not know that you had musical talent. Um, tell me a little bit about the music that you make and, and what's, uh, what's the goal behind what, what you compose? Well, I've always, uh, my, my number one interest was always theology and number two was music and three was human behavior. Um, so I never got a chance to teach theology per se, but I've always been interested in lifting people spiritually. And so one of the great goals of the music is to, is to help people uh, be lifted spiritually. In the other website coming upward, we're going to be discussing uh, the need for God and the reason why we need to have mentors that are greater than us to lift us in our lives. I hope that the music will, will uh, first of all, relax us enough to be able to do that. And also, uh, I, I, I do piano music. I, some of that's just got to be fun stuff for people as they're getting to be better. But I've always been interested in choral and piano and organ and all of those different kinds of music and hope to be able to uh, get down everything that's been in my head the last 30 years how, on paper. How amazing to have that outlet. I know there are people who feel like there's something I want to contribute. I just don't know how exactly to do it, but um, what an amazing outlet to use. And again, I will have a link to both of your websites, including climbingupwardmusic.com as well as climbingupward.com. Um, John, I got to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Um, two segments goes by way too quick, but uh, we've got to <laughs> do this again on the regular. Um, I, I think that you have useful information that uh, that will benefit a lot of people. And I'm, I'm looking at myself, at, as I say, a lot of people named Brian who, <laughs> who actually have inquiring minds that want to know. Um, 30 seconds here. Any takeaways? The takeaway is, is that nothing that has happened to you is a permanent condition. Not only because God will help you through that, but also because if you'll get out of denial about where you need to be traveling next, you could go there.